Our three speakers uh, cover a very wide range of academic experiences, and that was very necessary to put together this particular volume. Uh, I could think of no single historian currently working in Australia today who could cover the fields of the war economy, uh, the politics of Australia at war, and the societal and social impact issues uh, within a single set of, of covers. Uh, and so I called upon a team of three to bring about that outcome. Whether and to what extent they've succeeded will be for you to decide once you've bought and read the book. <laughs> Without further ado, then, um, our three speakers in order are Peter Yule from the University of Melbourne, who will speak on the economy. John Connor, in a very jet-lagged state, having gotten off a flight from Canada this morning, from UNSW Canberra. And Peter Stanley, who probably needs no introduction, but will get one anyway, uh, and who also hails from UNSW Canberra. Uh, I won't pop up here again until that formal part of the remarks uh, has finished. So let me uh, welcome, to begin proceedings, Peter Yule. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you, everyone, for coming along. Um, but firstly, I'd like to warn you all against asking any questions. Um, about three years ago, it might be four years ago, I attended a similar function to this uh, at ANU where Peter Stanley was the speaker and I made the dreadful mistake of asking a question. And somehow, through a process that I really still don't understand, this was seen as clear proof that I'd volunteered to write the section on the Australian economy for, for this book. Uh, and although I was quite sure I hadn't volunteered and I had no interest in... in well, I had an interest in doing it because it's a topic that I, I found fascinating, but I certainly didn't have the time to possibly do it. But I found myself doing it. So don't ask any questions or God knows what you might end up volunteering for. Uh, in the first half of 1915, the British Army launched a series of offensives on the Western Front after um, trench warfare had you know, started towards the end of 1914. All of these offensives failed dismally with massive loss of life. The generals and the press blamed a shortage of shells for the disasters, arguing that with more ammunition, the artillery could have blasted their way through the German lines. And this sparked one of the most amazing episodes of, of the war. It was a popular movement throughout the British Empire to manufacture shells for the British artillery. If you want to read the full story, um, my colleague John has, uh, has written a, an excellent article on it. But um, just briefly, the story meant that in Australia there were dozens of little uh, establishments set up to make shells. The most extreme one, I think, was the Charters Towers Technical College, which, which offered to make 50 shells if the government provided the steel. Um, but uh, yeah, that was just an extreme example. Most of the others were little more than cottage industries, and the total shell production was tiny, and a high proportion of the shells that were made were rejected. After massive effort and expense, only about 15,000 shells of acceptable quality were made in Australia. And to put this in perspective, uh, the British Army fired over 1.5 million shells in the seven days before the Somme offensive in July 1916. Um, we produced enough shells to supply this barrage for about an hour and a half. Um, and by August 1916, the, uh, the whole effort was, was wound up. Uh, the factories either closed or reverted to civilian production. Now, this little episode is an extreme but revealing illustration of the performance of the Australian economy in the First World War. 
Over the years, there's really been remarkably little research on the impact of the First World War on Australian society. Um, Ernest Scott's book, published in the 1930s, is still, you know, until the present volume, of course, is still by far the, the, the best, if not the only reference for, for many aspects of it. Um, and much of the research that's been carried out has been on, conscription, on the conscription referenda and the strikes of 1917, um, much of it from a very left-wing uh, slant, and much of it done in the 1970s in the response to the Vietnam War. Um, remarkably little work has ever been done on the Australian economy in the First World War. And this is rather surprising because there are some fascinating questions about what happened and why. Um, perhaps the most interesting big question is, why did the Australian economy boom in the Second World War with zero unemployment and rapid economic growth, but in the First World War there was high unemployment and the economy shrank? Australia finished the First World War with massive war debts that actually have still not been paid off. We owe the British government... Uh, it depends how, how, how much they're going to charge for interest, but it's certainly several billion dollars still uh, for our First World War debt. We haven't made a repayment since, I think, the mid-1930s. Um, but the net debt after the Second World War was very low and was paid off very quickly. So why was the impact of the two world wars so different? There's really been very, very little research on that topic. I think because we're closer in time to the Second World War... Um, and some people here might recall it, but certainly you know, the parents of everyone here were perhaps more familiar with the story of the economy in that war. Australian factories were making sophisticated weapons such as aircraft and tanks, as well as machine tools, pharmaceuticals and scientific equipment. Women entered the workforce in very large numbers. Wages were high and, and so was taxation. There were very strong government controls over the whole economy. And the economy was growing rapidly and ended the war poised for a period of, of lengthy uh, and rapid economic growth. And I think people tend to assume that the First World War was the same. But no, it wasn't. It was very, very different. There was high unemployment, there were very few munitions factories and they made only simple weapons. Female employment rose only slightly. Wages fell during the war in real terms and taxation rose only slightly. Um, government controls over the economy were, were weak and ineffectual. The economy shrank during the war and didn't really recover until the Second World War. So from the economic point of view, the First World War was a catastrophe for Australia. In fact, it ranks um, behind only the depressions of the 1890s and the 1930s as an economic disaster. Um, over the war years, the Australian economy contracted by well over 10% in, in real terms. And just to put that in context, in Australia's last big recession in the early 1990s, which was our worst recession since the 1930s, GDP fell by 1.7%. And, you know, for those who were around at the time, particularly in Victoria, that felt, you know, disastrously bad. And yet, in the First World War, the economy shrank by far more than that. So given the contraction in GDP, unemployment in the First World War was actually not as bad as you, you'd expect, but, of course, it was hidden to a large extent by the enlistment of, of um, so many men in the army. Um, accurate unemployment figures aren't really available. They were just taken from the figures given by trade unions... Um, but it probably peaked at about 15% early in 1915 and remained over 10% for the rest of the war. And high unemployment combined with wartime inflation uh, led to a fall in real wages during the war. And after adjusting for inflation, real incomes fell by about 16%. In contrast, in the Second World War, I think they rose by about 40%. Um, and 
I think the fall in real wages was a simple explanation for the massive wave of strikes that swept the country in 1916 and 1917. And then we came out of the war with a massive war debt. Um, the Australian government chose to finance the First World War primarily through borrowing rather than taxation. Uh, the Commonwealth's debt rose from next to nothing in 1914 to £325 million in 1919, which was roughly equivalent to Australia's GDP in, in 1913. Um, interest payments on the debt in 1919 were more than total government expenditure had been in 1913. And throughout the interwar years, if you have a look at the, um, at the government's uh, uh, expenditure, um, the cost of financing the debt, the interest on the debt, and the cost of looking after ex-servicemen totally dominated the, the federal budget throughout the interwar years, leaving very little for anything else. So why was the First World War such an economic disaster while the Second World War gave the economy an enormous boost? Well, I'd like to answer that now, but um, given you know, we're on very tight timing with the three of us speaking, um, and also, of course, the good people at Oxford University Press would like me to say the answer's in the book, uh, <laughs> I won't go into answering it, uh, the question now. But I will give a hint. Uh, a fair bit of it has to do with wheat and... I only mentioned that because I, I really wanted to mention the title of the, the best book that I came across while doing research for this by a chap called DC Winterbottom, and his, his way with titles is far better than ours. I mean, The War at Home, yeah, it's OK, it says what it's about, but DC Winterbottom called his book Weevils in Wheat and the Storage of Grain in Bags. Now, I think that's a brilliant. Weevils in wheat and the storage of grain in bags. It's very hard to buy a copy. I did, I did try to buy a copy. But um, if you want to read it, it, it is in this library. And I, I strongly recommend it. And it will start to give you a clue as to why the Australian economy did so badly in the, in the First World War. But I'll, I'll leave it at that. Thank you very much. Good evening. Um, I think it's evening. Um, it's uh, having just arrived from Canada. I've been flying from uh, Kingston in Ontario uh, to here and in some ways I still feel like I am on the plane. Um, but what I'd like to talk to for the, the next little while is talk about three things which come out of the, the politics of, of the war. The first thing is, is that in Australia we end up with splits in the political parties on both sides of politics. And most people, if they know about the First World War, would be aware of the fact that the Labor Party splits uh, during the war. But we often forget the fact that this is also in the time when the Liberal Party splits with the country party being formed out of that side of politics. And I think this is a good way of sort of linking to what Peter has been talking about, as well as talking about a very good article about the attempt to construct um, munitions in Australia during the First World War, uh, Journal of Imperial and Commonwealth History, if you're interested in looking at it, but is the fact that the war has an economic effect on Australia which the Second World War doesn't have. It puts the country under strain. 
and that strain becomes the catalyst for change in politics. And we can see that on the Labor side. I think we can see that the Labor Party splits in 1916 because of the tension between a moderate part of the party and a more radical part of the party. And as Stuart uh, McIntyre says, this is who, in his history of the, the Labor Party, it's almost a generational thing that the people who are the leaders of the party are the older, more moderate people. The, the people who are, who are leading the split are, are a younger generation and their views of what the Labor Party should and shouldn't be doing is different to that older generation. And this really comes out of, out of the war. And uh, George Pearce, who's the Defence Minister in, the, in that Labor Party government which splits, he, he talks about how it's, it's the nature of, of, of war, events like war that they, they have effects. And he talks about you know, Australia being a little boat being, stopped, being sort of tossed in a stormy sea. And this is why the, you end up with this, uh, this split in the Labor Party. The other party, of course, which I say which has a split which we forget about is the Liberal Party. And we've got to remember that the Liberal Party comes into the First World War. I mean, not enough has really been written about that Liberal Party which existed in 1914. This isn't the Liberal Party of Menzies. It's a very different sort of party. Is that that party had a, lead, a strong leader in Alfred Deakin. Deakin has to resign just, in the early, just before the, the beginning of, of the war and he then gets replaced. When he gets replaced, there's no natural leader and you end up with various people being leaders who are contesting. And so you have Joseph Cook, who becomes a Prime Minister. You have John Forrest from Western Australia, who thinks that he should, he should be the leader. And in the 1914 election, that election which happens just after the beginning of the war, you end up with um, uh, a guy, William Watt, who's the Premier of Victoria, who can see there's a Labor that who sees there's a vacuum in the federal party and thinks he can move from state po politics to federal politics and get that position. Um, Ironically, he doesn't, he, having got into federal politics and actually being the acting Prime Minister in 1918, while Billy Hughes and Joseph Cook are off um, you know, dealing with the, the, the war conf peace conferences and stuff, he actually hates the thing of being Prime Minister and actually says, can you come home? Because I'm sick of Prime Minister, I want you to come back and take over again. So be careful what you wish for, is, is the thing to say there. But like I said, the, the, the country party emerges out of the war and... One of the things which happens is, is because of the, fact of the, the effect of, of, of war on agriculture. Um, shipping is, is, becomes very rare to coming to Australia because it's more practical. If the British are wanting to export wheat, for example, it's better off if they get that wheat from Canada than come from Australia. That ship going to Western Australia and back to, uh, to Britain, that ship, if you put it on the Canadian route, could do three, three trips in the time it takes to do one trip to Australia. Uh, you end up... So there's that economic trouble they have. Uh, there's also increased government control because of inflation and, and things that the, the federal government puts price controls in order to stop the prices of, of commodities like meat ex, ex, you know, expanding, you know, going up so much that people can't afford to buy it. And in June of 1918, you actually have this massive protest in front of the Parliament House in Melbourne, which is where the federal parliament met, where they have, like, the newspaper reports don't tell you how many there are, but there's enough to fill the main hall of the Victorian Parliament House. And all these farm, they're all farmers who are protesting, and they've all got a little badge of a piece of wheat, uh, sorry, piece of wool, I should say, on their lapel as a way of showing. And they're protesting about uh, government controls on, uh, on, on, uh, on meat prices, saying that they should have the... That that's unfair. They should have the right to, to, um, to, get, to charge the price they want. And, of course, that 
1918, uh, you end up with sort of a, a bit of a, a recognition of that you're going to get, going to get a, a sort of a, a split as happening. And during 1918-1919, you end up with uh, country party uh, people going into elections. And because it's first past the post voting, you end up with, uh, if you have a, a Labor and a Liberal and a country party person, the, 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 the voting on the right is split and that means that the country person ends up often winning. And this is the reason we end up with preferential voting in Australia, is because of the fact that the, it's a way of, of, of preventing the split in, in that conservative vote. But, of course, as we, we, you might know that in, in the 1919 election, the 1922 election, the election just after the war, the country party really grows in, in numbers, and in 1922 they're powerful enough that they manage to uh, get rid of Billy Hughes as Prime Minister, who's been Prime Minister since 1915. So that uh, Billy Hughes has not gotten Billy Hughes's political career as Prime Minister is not stopped by the Labor Party. It's actually stopped by the on the left. It's actually stopped by the Country Party on the right. Now, two other things I want to, um, want to talk about. Although uh, are, I want to look at the the way Mannix comes into the picture of politics in the war, and then I'll also sort of go from that, looking at the, you know, how the, the issue of conscription in Australia and and uh, make a, perhaps a provocative statement to say that it actually would have been a good thing if Australia had conscription in the First World War. I think Mannix, who of course was the assistant bishop, an Irish-born Catholic priest, um, comes to Australia, he be, he's the, the, uh, the assistant bishop of Melbourne and then he becomes the, uh, uh, the archbishop of Melbourne. I think you've got to understand him... in. It, it's, to understand him, you've got to understand the way he looked at himself, that this is the, the, the old Catholic Church which, in which, before the, the Second Vatican Council, in which a, the, the, a bishop was a prince of the church and viewed themselves in a sense of, as being sort of, in a way, the, the, the head of the congregation in a way which we, we don't understand um, church leaders perhaps doing today. And, of course, the thing is as though that what happens if you construct yourself as being the leader of these people and then the people are actually going in a direction that you may not be expecting them to? And I think that coming out of, say, the, the things of 1917, that 1917 conscription referendum, which happens at the end of 1917, this is by this stage that Mannix is the, uh, is the archbishop, is that he can see that the, the working class are being radicalised and that a large proportion, of, uh, large proportion of the Catholic population are working class. And I can see in what he's saying, you can almost see a shift that the people are out here and he is their leader, so he has to follow them in order to lead them. And, if you, and it's, a very, um, it's, a, it's a very interesting thing. I don't think he's... He's, he's being forced to make talk, talk about the, 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 the issue of conscription in terms of a class struggle and stuff like this. And this is a sort of a, an, an academic uh, Catholic prelate. It doesn't sort of... Someone who probably wouldn't have sort of given much interest to the class struggle, yet he's forced into this position because he can only be the leader of the, uh, of, of the, of the people, of his congregation, if he, can, if he moves to where they are. And this is exactly the same thing which happens in Ireland in 1918 when there's a conscription debate there and you have the same thing where the, the, the much larger Catholic hierarchy there realises that the, the, the population are against cons the idea of possibility of conscription which is coming in and they're forced to, to move over and become the leader of it because they're afraid the other alternative, which is the political party Sinn Féin, might be the leader of them. And so they believe that they have to... They put themselves into that position, so they move uh, in directions they may not have expected to. And that's a good time to sort of 
just then sort of look at, look at conscription. And what I argue in the books, I'm actually telling you something in the book so you don't necessarily have to buy, buy it, but uh, to say, I'm trying, maybe trying to save you money compared to the others, but there are plenty of other things which I'm not going to mention which are in the book, is that how I put it is that if Australia had have introduced conscription in 1916 or, or 1917, and particularly the 1917 one is probably the one to look at, it actually would have been a, very, a good thing because it would have been a more efficient uh, way of, of dealing with the fact of who, who, are the, who are the best people to go to war and who not. Um, we often... What we have to remember is that in 1916, when that first conscription was basically saying was basically going to conscript everyone, by 1917... The conscription model which is put up for the vote then is actually one which is more precise. And what he's saying is there will be a quota of people, men, who should be enlisting every month. If people volunteer to that amount, then it, uh, those people... Then there's no need to have any conscripts. You'll only have conscripts to the extent you have to fill up that quota. And it's a, a system... They didn't, I don't know if they actually mentioned it because they might have been a bit ashamed to say it, but it's actually a system which New Zealand had introduced in 1916. And it was a system which was a very efficient... Well, it was a half-efficient system in New Zealand. What they did there was that they, they said they weren't going to create a massive army, they just wanted to put, get enough replacements to keep the army they had. And that's what they do. The other part of it, though, is that you had local committees who would decide in their district how you'd come up with a quota. And this is where the system fell down. If it had been efficient, it would have been able to look at rationally at the people in their community and saying... These people are farmers and maybe they, there's a need for some of these people to stay for the importance of production. Maybe these people are people in more position to go. What happened was you ended up with people in those committees who were saying the war needs as many people and they just would send everyone to the... And this ends up being to the detriment of the New Zealand economy. And we know what the New Zealand economy is generally like, so if this is the detriment, you know that's a real problem. I hope the New Zealand uh, ambassador isn't here tonight. <laughs> the, when the, so the, the 1917 conscription, um, it actually... This, this, is, this is what people are voting for. It was actually a system like that. It would not have made the Australian army larger. It just would have had it as a, as a, as a way of just replacing these people. Um, the interesting thing, of course, is that no-one really talks about the fact that in the Second World War the Labor Party introduces conscription. That it's Curtin who introduced... Uh, well, uh, for overseas service, I should say. That there is, there is, in the sense of when Curtin, having said that the, the war is now expanding beyond the Australian territories of, of Papua New Guinea, for which there was conscription because that's part of Australia, that because troops could be going further, say, into, the, into what's now Indonesia, that, uh, that that area is expanded, and that happens under Curtin. And... That system of, of, uh, of conscription is more along the idea of that model which New Zealand sort of had in theory and could have had in practice. And what could have happened, and I think could have happened in Australia in the First World War, what happens is that you have Chifley, who is the, the treasurer, and what he's saying is how do we balance the needs of the war effort to the needs of the economy and finds as there are more and more American troops coming into the southwest Pacific, there actually is less need for Australian soldiers. And from 1943, he starts taking people such as farmers and other skilled people out of the army, putting them back into, into production, saying that's the best way you can do with the war effort. And, um, and, that will, uh, and, that was, and it shows you the way in which uh, perhaps one of the things we've been trying to be spoken is to look at some things about the war in a new way. 
and, um, and hopefully that's something that uh, you will all find when you go to the bookshop and purchase a book after this talk today. Thank you very much. Thanks, John. Uh, good evening, everybody, and thanks for coming along. Uh, it's been a great pleasure being working with these three gentlemen here, and I hope to show you some of the fruits of it. This book's called The War at Home. Why isn't it called The Home Front? It's, be called, it's not called The Home Front because the term Home Front wasn't used in Australia during the Great War. I discovered that from the National Library's wonderful device of Trove. The phrase first appeared in Australian newspapers in May 1918, and it was used exclusively to refer to Germany. So Australia didn't have a home front. Uh, the books organize, my section of the book's organised in ten chapters, each of which is headed by a verb. First, cheering, looking at the outbreak of war, the war that everyone expected. This war didn't come as a surprise. The exact time might have been a surprise, but they knew it was coming. The National Library has this photograph of the very first shot, shot fired by the British Empire in the course of the Great War. Uh, the battery at Fort Nepean fired on the Faltz uh, on the 5th of August, and it's uh, recorded by a, a man who was there on the spot. Loyalty, that postcard which demonstrates Australia's commitment to the empire, loyalty is a watchword right through the war for Australians. Uh, accepting, uh, people accepted that the war would cause, cause casualties and of course in the middle of 1915, as this Norman Lindsay cartoon suggests, those casualties came to return to Australia and who were they given to? Not to the government but in fact they were the responsibility of families by, uh, to the, to the greatest extent. Marina Larson's done a wonderful book called Shattered Anzacs, which documents the extent to which families were responsible for the rehabilitation of wounded men. And then the, the other thing that, that dominates the war for Australia is the War Precautions Act, which made practically anything that wasn't compulsory illegal. Uh, it was the most uh, draconian and extensive legislation Australia's ever seen in wartime. Um, and if I had time, I'd talk to you about some of the... Um, the impost that this act made. I'm talking at the Parliamentary Library on Wednesday, uh, lunchtime, about the War Precautions Act and, and it, the, the effects it had. Internment was a big deal for German Australians, about 130,000 German Australians, a very small number of whom were interned, but it scarred the German Australian community. That's a program from the National Library's collection for the Deutsche Theater at Liverpool, uh, and there was a whole community in the, um, in the internment camps, principally Holdsworthy, um, but the German Australian community never really recovered from the allegations of disloyalty that were directed towards it during the Great War. But mobilising, Australia was, of course, mobilised in the course of the war, uh, first of all in a military sense, and that's a wonderful Norman Lindsay cartoon. I'll read it out to you if you can't see it. The, recruiting sergeant, uh, the, the man asked the recruiting sergeant, any luck, sergeant? The usual three, he replies. What, recruits? No, cheers. The, the, the voluntary system in Australia failed by the start of 1916, uh, and there was this pressure directed at eligibles for the rest of the war. The other big mobilisation in Australia was the voluntary war effort, and you can see one of the examples of it there, this time directed towards Belgian refugees. But there were literally thousands of uh, patriotic causes uh, through the war, and Australians supported this huge sector of the economy in a very big way. Finally, just to mention the word censorship, censorship of letters, as in this case, but also censorship of publications. Everything published in Australia virtually, with the exception of the most remote local newspapers, was, was censored by military officers, which means, in a sense, that you can't trust anything you read in the papers for Australia in the Great War, and you have to find your way through that minefield. 
supporting, and women supported the Great War in, in an enormous way. There's a, a volunteer uh, just before the 1917 conscription referendum pinning a badge or flag on a man's lapel. The patriotic middle-class women were the absolute mainstay of the voluntary war effort, uh, and, many, and indeed they were the mainstay also of the protests against the war. Children were um, manipulated by both sides, both the, in the conscription referenda, pro and anti, used children as highly manipulable symbols. Uh, in schools, children were virtually conscripted to knit and create things for the war effort. They're, they're victims in all sorts of ways. And finally, another Norman Lindsay cartoon, uh, this one headed Shameless, uh, published in March 1918. And you can see the, uh, the, uh, Norman Lindsay's contempt for the man who will not go. And I'm very interested in the man who stayed at home because, in fact, then the majority of Australian eligibles <clears throat> did not go to the war. Uh, jeering those who opposed the war uh, and the, the, uh, the song I didn't raise my boy to be a soldier became the anthem of the pacifist movement and in fact was banned under the War Precautions Act sport became one of the litmus tests of loyalty so that uh, patriotic sports uh, which were supported by middle class patriots tended to dry up um, or, or continue under the badge of patriotic carnivals whereas working class sports continued but they were condemned for their disloyalty the word loyalty again, for continuing to play sport when men were risking their lives on the Western Front. But all through the war, ordinary life goes on. And this cartoon by Minns in the bulletin is, to me, wonderful. Uh, I'll read it out to you again. The, uh, the young woman on the left comes into a dress shop and says, have you got a black costume that would suit me? Um, and the, the dressmaker says, well, yes, we can make you one. Why? Well, you see, we're, we only heard this morning that my brother was killed and I want to go to the dance tonight. And that sounds shocking, doesn't it? Because we're all attuned to being deeply respectful about the dead. But here in the, the um, middle of 1918, you find jokes being made about dead brothers. And I think it's a sign that life goes on and that the extraordinary becomes normal in wartime. Understanding, faith, the, that sermon that, uh, published in or delivered in Hay in early 1915, before any Australians are killed in the war, uh, the Reverend Lyndon Webb muses, struggles with the religious significance of war. Um, and this is a sign, I think, that the war tested the faith of many Australians and actually damaged re organised religion in this country because the, basically the Protestant churches at least endorsed the war and when the war turned into this terrible, costly struggle, the churches were left embarrassed and, and exposed. Propaganda. Propaganda delivered right through the war and as you can see, the, the brutal um, uh, imputations about the, the Germans, some of which were true for Belgium, but they kept through right through the war to the point where... Propaganda um, tried to persuade people that they had to support this war because the Germans were going to invade Australia. And finally, culture. And all that the war created its own culture, like this uh, short stories by Harley Matthews. But Australian culture went on. One of the, the, the shortfalls of Ernest Scott's history was that he recognised that he didn't do justice to Australian culture. And guess what? Neither have I. I feel a great sympathy for Ernest Scott. Uh, enduring, the idea of sacrifice. There's the, um, the, the, the medallion presented to Henry and Mary Ann Higgins, uh, the judge, the Harvester Judgment judge, whose son Mervyn was killed at uh, Magdaba in 1916, uh, a symbol of the enormous um, impact that the war made on Australians. Aborigines, nobody seems to have looked at Aborigines during the Great War, except that now we know about 1,000 Aborigines joined the AIF. These are women from Lake Tyre's mission in Victoria, where about 26 men went to, to join the war. And one, a Sydney clergyman, musing on this phenomenon during the war, said, um, what have we done for them that they should fight for us? It's a, a question which is at the heart of this. 
And the, war also, sorry, the, the volume also looks at relations between men and women. There's a drawing by uh, Ruby Lind, the uh, Australian artist married to Will Dyson, who died in the flu epidemic in London in 1918, 1919, um, representing their relations between men and women, uh, both conventional relations and sexual eccentrics like William Chidley, who, who died in Sydney in 1916. Well, the war obviously brought suffering, death and grief. That picture, to me, is an enormously powerful one. It was, paint, it was drawn by Hilda Ricks Nicholas, the Australian artist who married her husband, uh, um, what was his name, Harold, in October 1916, and he was killed on the Western Front the very next month. And later, a few months later, she did this depiction of what desolation looked like. The war also introduced, picking up that theme of the impact of the war on Australians' religious feelings, and John mentioned Mannix. The war deepened sectarianism in Australia, which already existed, but it really plunged Australia into a chasm of sectarianism that affected Australian life for decades to come. It almost doesn't exist anymore, but it was a, a real factor in, in the war and after. And again, John mentioned the protests in Melbourne, uh, led in this case by um, Ad Adele Pankhurst. She's the tall lady in the middle there. Enormous protests, again, in this case led by women, uh, protesting against the, the effects of the war economically, which John and, and Peter have both spoken of. Returning uh, at the end of the war, the armistice, which coincides with the flu epidemic, uh, diggers, the Digger Gazette there representing the fact that 150,000, what, 200-something thousand Australian troops came back from the war uh, and formed their own community with their own ideas, their own beliefs, their own attitudes, their own legislation to, to govern the way they were to receive preference. Uh, an enormous change in Australian social and political life. And the, uh, the idea of reconstruction, that, that poster to buy peace bonds, where people are looking forward to the benefits of peace at the end of, of this terrible war. And finally, remembering uh, that the phenomenon of Anzac, which is now such a, an inescapable part of the way we think of the Great War and after, uh, of course it was invented during the First World War, and, and the, the, that war grappled with the consequences for this society of losing that many men in the midst of that much discord, as, as John's mentioned, the, the conscription referendum, which tore the country apart. In the middle there is Ernest Scott, who is the progenitor of the, of the project, in a sense, in that the very first thing I did was to read Ernest Scott's volume, and I now have an enormous respect for Ernest Scott. Um, I mean, I think in lots of ways he was a dull man, but he, did, he tackled this enormous responsibility in ways that, that I don't feel equal to. And finally, the war's effects. There's a, a souvenir from the, uh, the, the Melbourne suburb of Canterbury. I think it's Melbourne. Yes, Canterbury, um, in which the community remembers those that it's lost during the Great War. Uh, it's, again, from the National Library's collection, as most of the things that I've shown you tonight are. So I've just given you a gallop through some images that look at the wonderfully rich tapestry of experience um, of Australia in the Great War, tragic and poignant, uh, passionate. Um, I feel very privileged to have worked on this volume along with, with Jeff, John and Peter, um, and I do hope you enjoy it and get something from it. Thank you. <laughs>